0: It's not often on a Sunday morning that I will tell you we're going to the Old Testament and we're going to read a lot of scripture today and then give you a 10 second chance to get out of the auditorium. Because once this 10 seconds evaporates, I'm expecting you're here to listen to this message. Exodus chapter 20, we're back in the Ten Commandments. We are not studying the Ten Commandments because we believe that we have to uphold them in order to attain salvation. Thank God that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the law and in the shed blood of Jesus and only Jesus can we be saved. We could never uphold the law. But because this is revelatory of who God is, it is relevant to how we should live and we're going to begin the second commandment and unpack and learn about our modern day life and how to properly worship God. I'll begin reading in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4. This is one commandment, but there's a lot of real estate in this passage given to it. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. No doubt this is a command against idols. However, in the New Testament, John, the beloved disciple, writes in his first letter, little children, talking to believers, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's what he writes in 1 John. The fact is, we have to discern what God is communicating here. And no doubt, again, it is a direct mandate against idolatry, but also it is indicative of spiritual heart disease. This is not merely reiterating the first command. This is different than the first command. If I was going to try to enhance your scriptural knowledge by helping you with a biblical illustration to understand the differences between the first commandment and the second commandment, I would take you to the story of Jehu. Jehu in the Old Testament who took a heroic step. In fact, Jehu is known and is praised for eliminating Baal worship in Israel. When we hear this assessment of Jehu, we are excited about what we hear. In 2 Kings 10, 28, we read this of Jehu. Thus, Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. That's a win. Worshiping Baal is the worship of a false god. And Jehu eliminates Baal worship from Israel. That's really good. But the next verse in in 2 Kings begins with the word how be it. However, in effect, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's another king who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them. What was it that he did not depart after? To wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, set up golden calves. One in Dan, and one in Bethel, and they were emblematic of the true God. And instead of going down and worshiping God as he mandated, he simplified things, he made it more convenient, and he said, rather than travel all the way, you can either go to Dan or to Bethel, and there you will find golden calves that are emblematic of the true God, and you can worship God there. Aaron made that mistake. In Exodus 31 and 32, we have the account where Aaron fashions golden calves, and he's so audacious that he says to the children of Israel, these be the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. And when Jeroboam sets up those two golden calves in Dan and in Bethel, he says to them, using the same verbiage as Aaron, these be the calves, these be the gods, I'm sorry, which brought you out of Egypt. Major mistake. So what we're learning is this, the first commandment, And the second commandment are not just one and the same. They are two very different things. You can eliminate Baal worship and still fail by worshiping the true God in a wrong way. That's what this is about. And God is very serious about it. In fact, there are few commandments where we hear God reveal something about himself, and he did so in this command because he said, I am a jealous God. Jealousy is not something that we think of as a good thing. In fact, if I were to quote Shakespeare, which I do and read after often, like many of you, Shakespeare said this, jealousy is an ugly word. It is the green-eyed monster. It has overtones of selfishness, doesn't it, when we think of jealousy. Overtones of suspicion, of distrust, hostility towards other people. It's possessive. We think of it as demanding, it's overbearing, and to us that is repulsive. But the root of that word in the Old Testament really indicates to become intensely red. So scripture disagrees with Shakespeare who denoted it as a green-eyed monster, and in the Hebrew of the Old Testament it means to become intensely red. What it indicates is an emotion rising within, so the face changes to red. And the word is almost used interchangeably with the word zeal. For God being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same thing. What is God jealous about? What is he zealous for? He is eager about protecting what is precious to him. What is precious to him? I want you to hear how God uses this word as a name. In Exodus 34, 14, we read this, For thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God's name is the epitome of who and what he is. And he says his name is Jealous. Jealousy is not merely a passing mood of God. It is the essence of his person. God cannot be anything other than jealous. He is the highest and the greatest being there is. The fact is, he is infinitely holy and glorious. He must be passionately then committed to preserving his honor and his supremacy, and he zealously or jealously desires exclusive devotion and worship. You cannot escape that mandate from within Scripture. You cannot devise a God other than God as he is declared within the Bible. You cannot imagine God in any other way than he is revealed in the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us in the life of Jesus. You cannot think of salvation outside the bounds of what God has declared. He is zealous about this. And if God is serious about this, then it is for us. One author said this, if God by virtue of his essential being must be jealous for his uniqueness and his supremacy above all, then those who know him and want to please him should be just as jealous for him. You say, okay, thou shalt not make any graven image. I get it and I know I shouldn't do it because God is a jealous God. There are no graven images in my home, but I ask you this, is there idolatry in your heart? If John brings it up in the New Testament, little children, two believers, keep yourselves from idols, amen, certainly there's relevance for us. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the believers that were in Colossae, he writes incredibly vividly, He brings up a real clear image. Here's what he writes to them in Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Mortify. What does mortify mean? Die, right? Put to death. So you read that, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, and you think, so the Bible's telling me to kill my family? No. That was humor, but like, you don't joke about killing people's families in church. It's not that funny. But I mean, you read, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. What he is saying is this, there are carnal base things that are within us that have been crucified with Christ and now we must willfully engage in battle by putting to death the deeds of our old man, our flesh. He then enhances or or tells us about it. It's fornication, put it to death. Uncleanness, put it to death. Inordinate affection, put it to death. Evil concupiscence, I know we could study that out. Trust me, it's bad. Put it to death. And covetousness, and get this, which is idolatry? See, I've never battled idolatry. I don't have any little images in my home. Well, have you ever battled covetousness? Because covetousness is, in the New Testament, idolatry. Covetousness dethrones God. Covetousness says, I want something that God did not give me because I know better what is best for me than God does. God clearly cannot be sovereign. I should be sovereign because I want what he has not given me and I dethrone God. One wrote this, covetousness secures the affections which properly belong to God and is therefore idolatry. Of all base passions, this is the one that most dethrones God from the soul. Who's on the throne on the inside? Now, we're just going to unpack this commandment, and we're going to learn about God. And the very first phrase is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Don't do it. Now, we're going to get a little more clarity on this. We're staying in Exodus chapter 20, and maybe you're there. Certainly, they'll be available here. In, in verses 23, 4, and 5, we get clarity, amplification of this command even further. Verse 23. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. So, some well-intentioned person out there might take something like gold and silver, which is precious, and with good intentions want to give of God, or to God the best, make an image of him of silver and of gold. And he says, don't do it. Now listen, it gets really deep here. Here's what he wants in verse 24. Now, this is gonna sound really Old Testament. Stick with it, it makes sense. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. So here's what he says. Silver and gold I'm not interested in. Silver and gold makes sense to you. I want you to make to me an altar of earth. And on this altar of earth, I want you to obey my mandated method of proper worship. Silver and gold makes sense to you, but I want an altar of earth, and I'm about to articulate unto you, and he will throughout the law, the sacrificial system. You don't decide or devise how to properly worship God. He decides how to rightly worship him, and we submit to his plan. And so he says, I want an altar of earth. Now get this, he goes further in verse 25. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Now this is helpful. How is this helpful? He says, if you were to build me an altar of stone, I want you to simply dig the boulders out of the ground and I want you to build the altar out of those boulders. I don't want any stonemason and I don't want any masonry tool on those rocks because I know you in effect. And I know that before long, you will be worshiping the altar more than what is done on the altar or what the altar is there for. You will make ornate altars You will hewn these stones to use the word in such a way so as to begin to turn all of your attention on who has the best altar and cease to see why it's there. In effect, God says, as one author writes, I don't want any props in worship. I want the focus of your worship attention to be on me and on me alone. Don't draw attention to yourself Don't draw attention to the vehicle. Draw attention to me. I am to be exalted. And by the way, I'm red in the face, zealous about this. And if you, again, are immediately compelled to think this has no relevance, I want you to listen to the pathology of spiritual heart disease that is communicated in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 tells us about society, that is completely turned over to sin. It is the culmination of society dwelling in the curse of sin. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, and again, I emphasize this is in the New Testament. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every human on earth knows God exists. They are without excuse. But what will they do with their knowledge of God? I'll continue on. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds, four footed beasts, and creeping things. The de evolution, a downward spiral. What is idolatry in Romans chapter 1? Paul gives us a little a little staircase down. He said the first thing is when you knew God as God because creation declares him, it tells us of his, of his eternal Godhead, it tells us of his power, it is manifest within us that there is a God. But what do we do with that knowledge of God? They glorified him not as God. They did not have a proper opinion of God. They did not have a right idea of God. And they were not thankful. When you do not know or see God as you should, you are not thankful to God. And ultimately what you do is you replace God and that's what happens. That's what we see going on in the world. Here's what one author said. Those who reject God as he is revealed in scripture and worship God, quote unquote, as they conceive him to be, are violating the second commandment. Some claim to be Christians, he wrote, but they say, my God is a God of love, not of wrath and judgment. They're worshiping an idol that they made up, not the God of the Bible. Water him down. Humanize God. Take God as he is declared to be in the word. Do not have a right opinion of him as he is declared. A proper doxology or praise of God. Not thankful to him. Ultimately, you replace him with something that makes more sense to you. And you end up worshiping not the God of the Bible, but some false God. Or you have some prop that you put in his place. The word image is related to imagination. How can we possibly imagine God adequately? We can't. And when we make an idol to represent God or we make God understandable to us by bringing him down to our level, we fail. God created man in his image and what man attempts to do is to turn and create God in in their image. You cannot alter who God is. You can't decide that God is not holy. You can't decide that God is not righteous. You cannot decide that God is not creator. You can reject it, but you cannot concoct some God that does not exist within the Bible. God is God, and he has revealed himself to us in his word. Thou shalt not make any graven image. And then he, he goes further. He says this, thou shalt not bow down nor serve. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Don't worship your own image of God. Don't worship anyone else's image of God. Thomas Watson, he was an old Puritan writer. If you ever seriously need sleep, dig up some of the old Puritanical writings and read them. It's in Old English, it's exhausting, it's tedious reading. However, they were incredibly bright. They were brilliant writers and strong theologians. He said this, he was writing a book on the Ten Commandments, and he said, let me give you three good reasons why you should not worship an image of God. Okay, I'm listening. He says, number one, it's impossible. You cannot represent God accurately with an image. God's asking a rhetorical question in Isaiah 40 and verse 25. Here's what he says. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Who in your imagination do you concoct me to be? Isn't it horrible how artists from medieval times have shaped our view of God? How many of you right now, if you tried could could concoct in your mind a picture of God, an image of God. Now you're scared to death because we're preaching the second commandment. (laughs) I don't want to go to hell. It's not we're not going to hell over this. Okay. How many how many does he have white hair? Anyone? White hair? Yeah. Is he big and strong? I mean we have all of these images of God. Some of the medieval artists even have him like with receding hairlines and stuff i like, that is, that is truly creating God in your own image. I think that's just insecurity coming out in romantic art. They have done us a disservice because God rhetorically asks this question. If you were to use your imagination, who would you liken me to? What would you consider to be my equal, saith the Holy One? And the, the answer to that question is, we can't possibly liken him to anything. He does not have an equal. The second thing Thomas Watson said is this, you shouldn't worship another image of God because it's impossible. Secondly, he says, it's absurd. It's irrational. I use the word stupid. Puritans didn't talk like that. Non-Puritans do. How dumb is it to think That we could concoct some form of God that is palatable to us to worship. How dumb can dumb be? Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, he tells us. Now this is going to sound real Old Testament-y. This is amazing scripture to read. Listen. This is Isaiah 44, verse 13. You can hear his sense of humor coming out. Isaiah gets a little sarcastic. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes. And he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn... For he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the residue thereof he maketh a god. Even his graven image, he falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Now I know that's really Old Testament and that's Isaiah being sarcastic and humorous under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but in effect he says, How dumb is this? A guy grows an ash and he, he, the rain nourishes it, he's planted it and he, he's the one who planted it and the rain nourishes it and it grows. He then cuts down that tree and he chops it up and he brings it into himself and part of it he kindles a fire with and he says, aha, I am warm. And part of it he builds a fire and he roasts, roasts on it and he bakes bread on it and with the residue of it, what's left over, he looks and he thinks to himself, I mean, I can take this and I can fashion a God out of it. And he puts it there, and then he bows down to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. It's foolish, it's absurd, it's irrational to think that you can take something that part you burn, part you cook with, and this part you decide you can make a God out of and worship it. You cannot It's impossible to concoct a proper image of God outside of what he's revealed to us. You cannot devise a way of salvation outside of what he has articulated. You cannot devise a method of worship outside of what he expects of you. It's absurd to concoct your own God out of all these broken down things. And third, Watson says, it's unlawful. We have to have a biblical image of God. You and I... Cannot worship God in wrong form. That's what Aaron did. That's what Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, did. I realize God did not give us a lot to go on. And we like tangible things. I want to see. I want to feel. I want part of that. And so Aaron gives them golden calves. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he does the same thing. He gives golden calves to them. They want that. Now, now I want to I want to help you see just how damning this problem can be. And I already told you I was going to read a lot of scripture, so I don't have to apologize, Though, though I'm sorry. I mean, when you leave here and I've read you a lot of Bible, boy, I failed to meet your expectations for coming to church. In the book of Numbers, and again, you probably have all of this memorized. I know most of the Pentateuch you have down. Here's what we read in Numbers 21. Now, the children of Israel have failed. God is judging them because of their sin. And to me, this is like the worst judgment God can send because he sends serpents and they bite people and the people with the fiery serpents and, and snakes are terrible things. And so God, in order to remedy this situation, he comes to Moses and he says to Moses in Numbers 21 and verse eight, and the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole." and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass he lived okay you you just heard me read it Moses has to make a serpent of brass it looks like the serpents that are biting people and they're dying put it on a pole Put the pole up in the air so that that brass serpent is visible from a great distance around. And it will be, if anybody is bitten, they can be healed from the bite of the serpent by looking at the brass serpent that is on the pole. Makes sense. Now stop. Let me clarify. This is not idolatry. This is obedience to the outlaid plan of God. This is not idolatry. They're not worshiping that. They are obeying God At his word, the power is not in the brass serpent. The power is in obedience to God's mandate. The power is in submission to God's plan. The power is in meeting God's expectations, not the brass serpent. But people need something tangible. They have to have a prop. They have to. So we read this in 2 Kings chapter 18, and we have jumped way into the future in the Bible. About 800 years. Here's what we read in 2 Kings 18.4. He removed, now we're at a victorious point. Things are getting right. We're getting rid of false gods again. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves. And listen to this. And break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. For 800 years, the children of Israel took that brass serpent and began to worship God via the brass serpent. Look what God did through this brass serpent. Certainly, we must burn incense to this brass serpent. And I think it's possible that they were worshiping God, but they were doing it in an improper way. They were worshiping the vehicle that God used More than the God of the vehicle. It denotes what he was trying to explain to us back here in Exodus chapter 20 when he said, even if you make an altar, just use rocks. Don't shape them in any way because before long, I know you people, you will be worshiping the stonemason and you'll be worshiping the altar and there'll be an altar building competition and you'll stop sacrifices altogether. For 800 years, they were burning incense to the brass serpent. They had created an idol, worshiping God, but they wanted this prop, using it as a vehicle to worship him and burning incense in front of it. And we're exactly like the Israelites. We love the tangible things. That's why a lot of people have to follow a man because they view him as the vehicle for spiritual success, or properly worshiping God. I can't take it if you take him away. There's a great old story. Henry Ward Beecher was a famous pastor. He pastored the Plymouth Church in New York. One Sunday, his very much less famous brother, Thomas, substituted for him. And when people arrived at Plymouth Church and they saw Thomas approach the pulpit, a lot of people in the room stood up and exited. They walked out. I'm not here to hear Thomas Beecher. I'm here to hear Henry Ward. And if it's not Henry Ward, then I'm not here to hear it. It's a lot like how you guys treat me here. (laughs) So Thomas, on his way to the pulpit, just raised his hand and he said this. All those who have come to worship Henry Ward Beecher may leave. All those who came to worship God may remain. That's a stinging rebuke, but it's true, isn't it? And we're guilty of stuff like that. We want the tangible. We want the vehicle. I'm more into the vehicle I'm more into the method than I am into what this is all about. As long as it's this guy, and as long as he says this, and as long as every idiosyncratic nuance lines up with what I want it to, then I can worship. If you remove any of that, I cannot worship. Tozer used to lament. In fact, he would cry and he would say this. Oh, it is so difficult to get people to come to church where God is the main attraction. It's so hard to get people to come to church where God is, please give me a show because only then can I wait. If I don't feel it, if I don't sense it, if it's not tangibly in my emotions, can I possibly have worshiped? I've got to have the vehicle if I'm ever going to get there. It's a stunning rebuke when you really think about God revealing himself to us like this. Someone else said, we come to church And if the hymns are the ones we like, we have worshipped. If the sermon is entertaining and interesting, we have worshipped. We could do without these things and worship. And that's true. You say, no, 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 because we call this the worship service and this the preaching part of the service. Well, you know, the Bible declares that giving unto the Lord is worshipping the Lord. And the Bible tells us that we can speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and and that's worshiping the Lord. And when we talk about the truth of the word of God and we declare what God says about himself in the word of God, that is worshiping God. And Jesus said, I'm looking for those who worship me in spirit and in truth. You do realize that we could flip the whole service upside down and we could still worship God. That you can worship God outside of these four walls. But we have bought into this idea, we have boiled God down to something that is palatable to us. We're desperate to have some prop. We have to have some tangible thing because revealed God is just not enough and we're just like the Israelites. Well, I remember 800 years ago, we looked at that brass serpent and people were healed. Get that brass serpent, let's burn some incense to that dude because there is power in that serpent. No, there's power in the God of that and there's power in God's plan behind that, and there's power in God's methodology, and it's obedient to submit to God according to what He mandates of us. Christians, again, one wrote, come to church to be entertained. They choose the church with the greatest show. And that's why John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What he's talking about is anything that replaces the prominence of God in our hearts. If you live throughout the week worshiping something other than Jesus Christ and then arrive on Sunday expecting that you'll worship him, it doesn't work that way. Are there idols in our lives or are we in the process daily of breaking the idols before they ever reach the throne? It's really deep and it's really hard to kind of articulate all that's wrapped up in it. But here's what we know. Romans 1 says, if we do not have a right doxology, a right opinion of God, and we are not thankful for him, then we will replace him with something. And if you have a right opinion of God, as he is declared in scripture, then you are thankful to him, you worship him for who he is. You do not replace him with something lesser, something more palatable, or some token, tangible thing, some prop to enable you to properly worship. Watson even said look it's impossible for you and I to bring God down to our level we cannot make him equal with anything we can't even imagine what he is other than what he has declared to us it's absurd to try to make God into our image I mean this is foolish to start with these dead things and try to make this it's not what God wants he is a jealous God he is zealous toward his holiness and his perfection he alone wants to be on the throne of your heart no one else Then there's an interesting phrase as he closes. He says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation. I've heard people preach that. And they're saying that if a father sins, the consequences are passed down to the third and the fourth generation and eventually God's wrath on that sin ebbs and it runs out. But what I think is more practical about that is God is saying the way that a father worships or a mother worships strongly translates to the way that a son or a daughter, grandson or, grandson or daughter, they worship. And he is basically communicating that if a father is an idolater, normally if a father refuses to acknowledge God, that's picked up by his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. But those that love him and keep his commandments, he stores up mercy for thousands, that's what he says. So what's being communicated is you are either storing up wrath for what is to come or you are storing up mercy for what is to come, all based on who's on the throne of your heart. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Don't capitulate. Don't worship the vehicle. You know, we try to invent ways of salvation that make sense to us. Well, what I got to do is I've got to work, I got to work, I got to work, I got to give, I got to get baptized, I've got to help old ladies across the street, I've got to show up to church, I've got to do all this stuff, I've got to be super nice to pastors. I think that does help, <laughs> does help. You can't concoct a way of salvation. Here's what God said, I sent my only begotten son Jesus, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, well, we don't create idols in our modern day world. Yes, we do, because we have replaced God's method of salvation with countless myriad other ways to get there. We have gotten to the place where we are truly worshiping those altars more than we are all about what's going on and what the altar represents. We worship methodology, and this happens on all ends of the spectrum. We worship our own piety and our own self-righteousness, our position, our perception. We dethrone God in a hundred ways as long as it makes us feel good and as long as it makes sense to us. As long as the guy's got his suit and tie and as long as he stands there in the pulpit, I can properly worship. Really? Because the fact is you can worship under the covers in your bed. And a lot of people have chosen to do that today. Look around. We can't worship the vehicle more than we do God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.